What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Make that selection and I will authorize it, but I'm not for this now. But bottom line is that David now is selected over Saul because Saul rejected God's leadership. And we see in David a man who is willing to follow God's leadership. So here's the deal. There is a human being sitting on the throne. Okay. But it was God's design and it continued to be God's design. And Gary, we will get to the point of asking whether it's still God's design. Yes. <laughs> that even though there is a human being sitting on the throne, that human being is supposed to take his orders from God. So the king is not really the king. The king is simply the voice of God to the people. That's the way God designed it. Even with Saul. Remember he set it all up. So Saul you do this. I'll have a prophet that will do this. And the two of you together will know everything you need to know. Just do what I tell you to do. Everything will be fine. Well Saul obviously didn't do that. So the king was never designed to be a, a dictator, wasn't designed to be a, some independent contractor. The king was always designed to be the one who would always do what God wanted that person to do. So Saul refused to honor that covenant, therefore God disregarded the entire family. So we've seen that so far. That even others who were the natural selection afterwards in the family, God bypassed. Because he said, you know, the whole family doesn't, doesn't get to sit on a throne anymore. And again, David is held up as that stark contrast to this first failed attempt. Because David consistently, and we've seen the quote about a hundred times so far, inquires of the Lord. That's the magic phrase. So, we also talk that that seems to be a thing that we Christians should be doing. I mean, if that's the thing noted in the relationship with, with, with David that made him stand out with God, it certainly makes sense. The same would be true for us today. What do you think, Gary? Is that... Yes. <laughs> so we're finishing up chapter 4, but when we get into chapter 5, we're going to discover that David becomes the ideal king because in principle, David submits to God's authority. So inquiring of God means that I'm going to submit. Even if God has asked me to do something I don't want to do or even something that doesn't make sense to me, nonetheless, I will do what God says. I will submit to God. And the beauty is that even when David does sin, when he goes against what God wants, David is ready to repent very, very quickly. And we're going to see that in a couple chapters. Bathsheba's right around the corner. Ah! Right? So, the role of the king and essentially all leaders 
are lumped into this same, same category is to simply submit to God and place God as our leader individually. Now, could you imagine how different this world would be if every leader from presidents and, and leaders of countries down through all government ranks, down through all preachers, uh, uh, just everybody who has an authority over others, teachers, uh, just everybody, if we all decided that we would listen to God and God alone. Wouldn't that be great? But it's such a rare thing that uh, we, we make note of it uh, in the rare occasion when it does happen. And we can look back over history, and obviously we've had a lot of really yucky dictators and other nasty people, and it's actually, looking through history, there hasn't been a whole lot of outstanding examples of people like David simply willing to follow whatever, whatever God wants. And especially in terms of Christian history. Now, these are Christians for crying out loud. These are people who say, I believe in God. It has rarely happened. Um, just throw a few historical facts at you that are kind of like Saul and Ishbosheth, uh, much more than somebody submitting to God. Uh, 1095 AD, uh, one of the Worst years in human history. Um, 1095, there was a, a a star exploded. Stars do that, you know, and created a a a a, a cloud around it, and it was so big that you could see it during the day. That scared the bejesus out of people. <laughs> They never seen, you know, no one had ever seen it like this before. I mean, during the daytime, this this nebula appears, and pardon me, what? Ten ninety five. So people kind of went nuts, um, figuring this is the end of the world. This is, I mean, this it was, it, you know, uh, the year two thousand. All the computers are going to crash and you know, go buy toilet paper and the whole nine yards. Yeah, it was it was really really bad. It was very very similar to that. So in 1095 then, as part of all this, 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 this frenzy in, in Europe, um, and pretty much everybody in the world saw this. So all, all nationalities and all cultures were just kind of going, going ballistic. At that point, the Turks, Turkish people, invaded Israel and took over, in particular, the site where Jesus was buried. Now, obviously, for Christians, that is a high, holy location. That's sacred ground. To that, the Pope, the leader, see where I'm going with this? The leader tells, at that time, you know, all you had was, was Roman Catholic, if you're a Christian, tells the, the Christians that if you will go to war against the Turks and regain this holy land, I will give you absolution of any sin you commit during that campaign. So you get to rape, pillage, and plunder all you want, and I will, I will clean you of that. And, and, are you sitting down? And the Pope gave them all, I mean, actual official embossed document from the Vatican. If you go to battle, 
against the Turks, I give you an official written guarantee you go to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just, I mean, wow. That's maybe a bit stretch. Yeah, either one of those, but both those together for, for, for one thing. So, and again, 1095, critical year. So, they actually did win that battle. But then, so Turks are Muslim. Obviously, if they're taking over the Holy Land and taking over our holy places, they are evil by design. 1095 also is when the Crusades started. That's why I say this is one of the worst years in all of human history. I mean, just I mean, when you put that much <laughs> into into one year, it's it, it's pretty bad. So uh, Christians, even we've given ourselves a black eye over the years, you know, because leadership says something, and and just why nobody apparently back in that day said that doesn't sound right. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. But in their understanding of things, and thanks to Martin Luther, 500 years later, who finally straightened things out, but it took that long to figure out that, well, the Pope really doesn't have those kind of powers and, and authority. But probably very few people could read. Well, exactly. So, no, well, the, the Bible was not, not something found on every coffee table. They, like, like what the Pope said. But uh, unfortunately, that, that same mentality is what exists today because there, there is not an emphasis among Roman Catholics to, to read the Bible and understand this for yourself. It's simply to listen to what, what the Pope and your priest tells you to do and just do that and apparently you will be saved. Again, that was another one of the 95 things Martin Luther found wrong <laughs> once he finally started reading the Bible. So it's really easy for that to happen. But again, that will happen as long as leaders refuse to submit to God and do their own thing. That's really the only difference. And again, you know, I don't want to exclude preachers from, from that either. Uh, just because you're a preacher doesn't mean you're a man or a woman of God. It doesn't come by 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 definition. So I I am certainly mindful of that that I need to submit to God and am trying to lead this congregation to to do the same. So you have leaders who do things like that. Saul certainly did things like that. You know, this Pope did something you know, a lot of popes did stuff like that. But here David stands, again, in, in contrast to all that. That's, that. that's the point I'm trying to make. That David has the opportunity twice to kill his enemy and take over the throne, uh, refuses to do it. Uh, he's simply willing to patiently wait for God's time to be God's time. Uh, by the way, Jesus did the same thing at the beginning of his ministry when uh, Satan offered... Uh, him all the power in the world if if he would just bow down and worship Satan. You kind of remember that, right? So, I mean, the the the, the parallels between Jesus and, and David are pretty innumerable. Uh, so it, it, it's it's kind of neat. So here's the question: If God honors and blesses the person who submits to Him. We see it here in the past. Is there any chance that God is going to do the same for us today? Yes. 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 
So that's that's the story. Now, you can break into small groups and discuss and make it more difficult than it really is, but that's that's the basic policy. Submit to God, obey God, yeah, whatever terminology you want to use there, uh, but that's that's where it 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 comes down. Uh, if you'll recall from quite a few years ago now in our study of Proverbs, uh, the first sentence, the beginning of wisdom is humility, humbling yourself before God. In other words, you want to be smart, that's what you got to do. Anything else you do, the rest of the entire, the, the whole other 31 chapters is showing you ways that people screw that up <laughs> and come up with all these different ways. So every, every other word is the wise man does this, the fool does this. The wise man does this, the fool does this. And you just, you can make, you know, take a piece of paper, just make a line down it, you know, wise here, fool here, and you can see the contrast that fools are foolish because their, their source of information is flawed. Because it's my source of information. It's my truth, as opposed to God's truth. And there goes chapter four. Thoughts, questions, comments on chapter four. Chapter five looks like a goodie. Because now finally David is coronated as king. And check it out, all the people rejoice. Now this is immediately after the nation was split in half. And half of them didn't want David at all. But now even they have come to the conclusion. Yes, David is the one designed to be king. And what this is showing us is, this is now the new model of being Israel's king. This is how you do it. The entire nation joins together. Verse 1. All the tribes of Israel. All 12 of them. Not 11. All 12. Now, do you know how hard it is to get 12 people to agree on something? <laughs> this is 12 whole tribes of hundreds of thousands of people apiece. Just saying, right? So all of a sudden, like I say, they were split before, everybody had their own idea, but now all of a sudden, boom, it just becomes a unified approach. We want David. In fact, the elders of these 12 tribes join in unison and tell David, we are your own flesh and blood. It's not like we support you, we are one with you, they are saying. I mean, that's incredible. Just recently was those northern tribes refused David and were actually trying to kill him. And now we are together. And we discover in verse 2 why they're saying that. Because even the northern tribes now admit that they know David has been chosen by God. Well, we've known it all along. We just wanted to do our own thing. How's that working for you? No, no submission to God. So if you recall several chapters ago, Abner, Saul's general, now pushing for Ishbosheth, uh, he even confessed twice. No, I've known all along. David, David is the one authorized by God to be king. I just wanted to fight it. <laughs> I, I thought my plan was better. So you have 
leaders, you have whole tribes choosing. Now, the, the point I'm making, this is not a choice made out of ignorance. This is a choice that I know full well that David is chosen by God and David is the one that God wants on the throne. Why do people choose against God's plan? Let me hear it. Why do people do that? Because they're morons. <laughs> <laughs> arrogance. An arrogance um, based on? They think they know better. Yeah. What else do you think? If they believe it, it has to be right. Ah, Whatever because because I'm never wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm always right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. We don't always search God's word to find the answer. Okay, so we we conveniently avoid the truth, which then allows us to become arrogant and make up our own thing. In your own mind, mm -hmm. but not with God. No, but in, yeah. in your own mind is enough justification for that type of person. Yep, but God, God does not let us off the hook for ignorance because it took me that long to, to get to it. But Romans chapter one, you know, keeps coming up. You know, they know, they know there is no excuse. In other words, there is no ignorance as a justifiable excuse for not knowing this stuff. So, with people who know the truth, now. I think this, this is critical for our understanding because this, since it was back then, it's still the same true today, right Gary? Okay, so we still have, let's, let's use Jay's word, we still have these morons all around us. These arrogant uh, know-it-alls who think in their system they have figured all this out and they're everywhere. They're everywhere. That's the person standing in front of you in line at Giant Eagle. They're everywhere. It's so common. Good. Some people don't want to submit until they have to because they want to have all their fun and be bad. And then right before I die, but yeah. you don't get that lucky. No. God, God knows the sincerity of your heart. Yeah. And he will certainly take into that account that if you're playing a game. Because, you see, again, it's based on the knowledge. You know this, and yet you're still choosing to, mm -hmm. Jesus calls it the, the unforgivable sin, to deny the Holy Spirit. The, you know, God's own presence in you speaking to you, if you continue to refuse to accept that, then you're running out of chances. And when you find your brother, like Saul, he, he hit the magic number, and God said, that's it. I'm out. Don't care what you do at this point. I'm out. You, you've used up all, all your chances. So. She's telling you too. Here's your sermon title, Jay. You know, pe people were morons back then. There's still morons around us today. Um, and it, it, it just, it's, it's astounding now to see the, the arrogance of people that, you know, knowing this truth knowing that God has this plan, knowing the calling of, of, of each and every one of our lives, that people will still choose to reject that. It, it just, it's, it's staggering. And the good news is we are not the ones called to save that person. We're simply called to, come, to make sure 
that they we we share the truth with them and whatever decision they make from there that's between them and god we don't save anybody but by the same token we don't throw anybody into hell we're simply a messenger with a story and if they want to accept it great if not we go on to the next person that's that's all we do in the process the holy spirit is the one who convicts and brings to salvation So, in verse 2, there, there's three important reasons cited as to why now everybody supports David. First of all, David is from the tribe of Judah, and therefore is a blood relative indeed of all 12 tribes. If you trace the history back, you'll, you'll discover that. So when they said in verse 1, you are our own flesh and blood, that's technically correct. That wasn't figurative, that's literal. That we we are from the same origin. So, in other words, you're not a foreigner. You're not some alien in in our midst. Secondly, even while Saul was king, David was the one leading the military campaign in the south. And that word finally got out. Remember when he was living with the Philistines? He was still running guerrilla attacks and and defending the tribes of the south. And so word of that got out. Of course, the South already knew it, but uh, the North finally figured it out. And they said, well, that's a pretty good guy then. And then thirdly, they began to realize that God himself called David to, quote, shepherd Israel and to be, quote, Israel's ruler. In other words, to be the king. Just a little side note, as a child, David was a shepherd. And now he's asked to shepherd my people Israel. So, verse 3, David makes a, a covenant, or your Bible might, might use the word compact, uh, with the 12 tribes. Now, this is essentially David saying, I am not your dictator. We have to reach an agreement. I will do this for you. You will do this for me. Sign the papers. Done deal. And then the rest of the chapter simply shows how David captures Jerusalem. He builds a palace there. He defeats the Philistines and brings about religious reform in that new capital city. I mean, all that happens like boom, 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 boom. In the next chapter, David is going to bring the ark back into the holy city. Now, the selection of, of Jerusalem as the new capital is a stroke of genius. Now, this city was previously in the hands of the Philistines. You're failing. But now David shows no sense of favoritism in selecting a city in either the north or the south. Previously, this is, by the way, his third coronation. <laughs> you think we're finally going to get this right? The private ceremony with Samuel. Then he was elected king in the south and his capital city was Hebron which is extreme south if he would have maintained extreme south capital that would be kind of a smack in the face to the people in the north Jerusalem is, is considerably farther north it's not center but it's south center in the nation which is much more acceptable so he's not showing favoritism by, by going either north or south Certainly didn't want to go north and, and reward the people in the north for, for all their bad behavior. But by the same token, doesn't want to offend them by going too, too far south. 
Uh, Jerusalem has the added advantage of being naturally easily defendable, kind of up on a plateau, uh, kind of hard to, to, to get to. And your trivia of the day, Jerusalem appears in the Bible more than 800 times. You think it's important? <laughs> right? So, some, some, some pretty good stuff there. Now, being the, uh, the location of Jerusalem and the, the way it's, it's formed, uh, verse 8 is a real strange verse. It talks about a water shaft, which is a little odd. Uh, must be some, now water can't go uphill, so it has to be water coming out of the city. So there was a, a, a tunnel system under the city to let this water out. So it just comes down the plateau and just runs out into the valley. Uh, so what they're talking about here is the, that seemed to be the, 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 the good place to attack from. We'll just get all the soldiers lined up in here and just run into the city, come up through the sewer grates and, uh, and, and come in there. We don't have to go in the front door. Uh, that seems to be what, what, what they're talking about there. Uh, there's a reference to the blind and the lame. They have fun with that. They, scholars have been fighting over that for, for, for years. But it seems to say that God is with David and this battle. And so the Philistines, who are in Jerusalem, will be as if the, the, the enemy will appear to you as blind and lame. Uh, which don't make very good soldiers. <laughs> they're, they're, you can get rid of them pretty, pretty quick, right? So uh, that seems to be what that odd, odd verse is about. But uh, uh, that water shaft image, you know, you can find that anywhere else in Scripture. So it just kind of popped up. That's, that's got to be what it's saying. So after that big battle, verse 10, David grows in power. And it's noted, look at verse 10. David grows in power for one reason and one reason only. What's the reason? God was with him. Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. End of story. But if you go back one prior step, the Lord God Almighty was with David because David chose to humble himself, submit to God, and allow God to, to lead him. Verse 11, the, the king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, uh, actually helps David build his palace. And if you keep following the story, that king of Tyre sticks around for a long time. And Solomon's next in line. He will help Solomon build the, the, the actual temple with all its gold and just all the ornate stuff and everything that's in there. It's absolutely incredible. So this, this king becomes an ally of, of Israel. Verse 12, important verse. David knew that the Lord had established him as king. I mean, he knows this. It's, it's, there's no, no question in his mind. But look at the reason why God did this. God exalted David's kingdom for the sake of God's people, Israel. So all this blessings of God to one man, David, was not so that David himself would personally benefit from that. It was so that David would then pass that blessing on to the nation, to the other people around, to share the blessing. 
That sounds like a good, good way we should be living as well, don't you think? That as we receive these blessings of God, that we then would pass on the blessing to others. But I've used the image before, don't become like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is literally dead because it has water coming in from the north. Nice, good, clean water, but it has no way out. And it just sits there, it stagnates, and you got flies and all kinds of other yucky things happening, and that's, that's the end of it. So we have to be like this process here. When we are blessed, we need to bless others. Now, I can't say it enough. David is, is, is great because he's simply willing to do whatever God wants him to do. But all this means is that Jerusalem becomes the seat of God's kingship. So we keep saying King David, but David is the one who's always saying, no, don't look at me. Look, look at what, what God is doing. Now, in verses 13 to 16, a really important passage here. David already has a few kids that were born in Hebron. And now we have a list of 11 more children born in Jerusalem. And we're getting to be a pretty good-sized family. Of course, he's got multiple wives, which I still don't understand. But there you go. Now, if you were to read Deuteronomy 17, 17, God himself declares that a man should not have too many wives. Just give us a number. Give us a specific number. Don't leave that vague, right? But apparently God did. But God says in 1717, you shouldn't have too many wives. Well, yeah, you have to define that. How many is too many? Two is too many. Yeah. <laughs> You're a wise man. But David's now up to four or five and looking for more, and it just it, it gets to that point. And so it... But that's noted at this point because apparently what Scripture is saying is David has crossed the line. He's got one too many. So maybe four is the magic number. Just seems beyond my comprehension, but you know, apparently back then times were different. So look, look, look here in, in, in 513. David took more concubines and wives. You see? So he already had too many and now he's adding more. Apparently this was a matter he did not consult God on. <laughs> hey, she's cute. <laughs> right? So. Well, it's the 17, 17, the second part of that is, or, your, or his heart will be led astray. So David's heart, which was always after God, maybe that last wife tipped the scale. And. Yes. <laughs> And in chapter 11, we've come across Bathsheba. That's a yeah, I mean, very good point. Because, yeah, it's just, it, you would get to the point of being so full of yourself, look at all the women I got, and then it, it would definitely lead, lead to sin. So what the scripture is saying, he's crossed the line, which is kind of the, the, the warning shot of now Bathsheba coming on the scene, which is just about his downfall. Um, now it, it says David took too many concubines and wives that's the exact quote but that's backwards all other places in scripture it's wives and concubines because wives are technically more important than, than your girlfriend <laughs> just saying um, 
So to be worded concubine and wife is also kind of a little subliminal statement here. Um, it, it seems to indicate that David is getting so full of himself that he's just he's taking too many women. Like wives now are not really that important. You know, wives are no more important than my girlfriends. We allowed to have girlfriends, Gary? No. It was that way back then. It's still, it's still, it's still, it's still the same today, right? Okay. So, by by reversing the concubines and wives, it, it, it's really saying there's just too many chicks running around David. I mean, it's just it's just too many. Stop it. Chicks and Was it? Too many chicks and too many people. Yeah, they're cranking out babies like crazy. It just uh, well, we're gonna get into the kids here pretty soon. Boy, does this run off the rails pretty fast? I mean, yeah, the one kills another, and yeah, it's 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 gonna be wild and crazy. So here we have the beginning of what we will be able to piece together later on. But I'll just let you in on the secret now, because what it's indicating is David. David's temptation, David's weakness is the opposite sex. He seems to have an insatiable desire for more and more women. And I think what that, that Deuteronomy passage is saying that Aaron pulled out was, is that, yes, that, that becomes a problem. Because that, you, you will replace God with, with women. Now, God has already said don't take too many wives. But this is what all the other nations do, what all the other kings are doing. Remember, Israel wanted to be like the other nations? So you would amass women. Yeah, women were no more than property back then, so you're, I mean, an important commodity, but a commodity nonetheless. So God says, that's why I don't want you having too many. So David's already crossed that line, but now David is starting to act like the other, the other nations, the ungodly nations. So that anyone looking from the outside might not be able to tell the difference between who's godly and who isn't by the way the king is living. Now, back in this day, the more wives and concubines you had, yes, they believed that. That, that just demonstrated how much more powerful, virile you, you are. Now, you think they would have learned this lesson. David is a lightweight compared to his son Solomon. I never can get the numbers right. I want to say it was 500 wives and 800 porcupines. I, I, I think that's correct. But it was hundreds of each. Hundreds and hundreds of each. Hundreds. It's your head spinning, Gary. <laughs> just just trying try, 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 try to fathom this. I mean, his eyes are rolling back in his head. and he, he, I mean, it just... He can't, he can't even picture. It's just, it's, it's inconceivable, isn't it? But you're getting him in trouble. Thirteen hundred women in one household. That's not counting your daughters, your teenage daughters. Which one or two of them is enough to, you know, make you go into the merchant marines, right? So, man, thirteen hundred women. Oh. And that's why God knows what he's doing. He says, don't have too many. <laughs> Just don't have too many. 
Actually, you know, by, by New Testament times, it's the prescription, yes, one, one wife. In fact, it says for, for the preacher, you're going to love this, uh, for, 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 for the preacher must only have one wife. I mean, so back in that culture, I mean, it was still allowable, it was still kind of customary uh, as a sign of, you know, I mean, you had, you had many slaves, you had lots of, lots of uh, uh, cattle and, and sheep and whatnot, but you know, as part of that possessions, you had multiple wives. So as the example for, for Christ, one, one only, end of story, done deal. And no girlfriends. I don't have any girlfriends at all. That's, <laughs> so David's playing with fire in more ways than one. <laughs> yes, Rose. So a thousand total. But it's the wives' fault. Yeah. yeah. It said his wives let him. <laughs> so apparently girlfriends are a good thing then. <laughs> so one one more time. Seven hundred wives and three hundred porcupines. Okay, seven. I never can get that number right. A thousand total. If I could just remember a thousand total, I'd be able to do the math from there, I think. Thank you. I can sleep tonight. Seven hundred wives. Oh my god. What's worse, Gary? Seven hundred wives or seven seven hundred girlfriends? Are you at the men's retreat? Yes. There's no right answer, to that Gary. Anyway, let's let let's, let's clean up chapter five, shall we? Uh, <laughs> starting in verse seventeen, pretty much to, to the end. Guess who shows up? Dun dun dun! The Philistines. Now they they seem to be content with Israel when they were in a civil war. If you're trying to defeat these guys, defeat them when they're they're split. But now they get really upset when David is king of the entire nation. Oh, we can't have that. We will go and invade them. Do you think part of it's the, the insult that he kind of had to the Philistines when he was with them? Yeah, yeah. It's, we, we, we can't allow him to be king. Because the fact that he yeah. kind of, it's almost like salt the wound for them? Yep. Yeah, it, no, notice there, there's nothing from King Achish here that uh, I, I would love, love to sit down and talk to this guy. What a knucklehead. Just totally oblivious to everything. So, a really stupid military move on the part of the Philistines. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> wow. That was bad. Boo on us. Yeah, boo, boo, boo on y'all. <laughs> so, to, to bring about another split, the Philistines attack the center of the nation, trying to get a wedge in there and, you know, kind of you know, cut off battle lines and, and, and do all that. So, this is critical because if David cannot hold the nation together militarily, the North would likely withdraw its support of David. Right? This was his chance now to prove his, his worthiness to be king. But if David wins, it will solidify him as the true king. People will know for sure. There will be never a question again. So, Stuck in a battle such as this of great difficulty against your, your sworn enemy, what do you do? Verse 19, David inquires of the Lord. Didn't see that coming, did you? Now, should I attack these guys? Kind of want to? <laughs> I think maybe I should. Militarily, it seems like a smart move. But God, you tell me. 
You see, I mean, that's the conversation he has. Didn't ask his wives. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get an elbow in a second here. <laughs> she, she, she's ramping up. <laughs> so David asks, God says yes. Go get them. I will be with you in battle. We will take care of it. No problem. And verse 21, the victory is so great that the few remaining Philistines abandon their gods and flee. Now that, I mean, again, symbolically is a huge move to abandon your gods. I mean, basically saying, well, your gods are stupid. You, you didn't help us, so you're useless. Uh, unfortunately, the Israelites did the same thing repeatedly if you keep following them through history. You know, as soon as you know something bad happened in the country, they abandoned God and they went to another, brought another God in, and you know, integrated that God in with the one true God, and God didn't like that much, and then it really got bad. Now, the one thing it says, I, uh, David and his men carried off the idols. That doesn't bode well. What what verse are you on? Twenty one. They abandoned their idols, and David and his men carried them off. Now they're carrying off the idols. To what end? I would like to think to destroy them, but it doesn't specify that. We 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 know we know that. We, well, remember way back when, when they 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 captured the ark. What did he say now? He needed gifts for his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Bring him something back for the trip. <laughs> Because you know when you when you travel you have to bring something back, right? <laughs> there wasn't a lot of balls around. Not a lot of balls. Seven Elevens. Of course. You need a U-Haul to bring it gets back. Eventually they were pretty big too, yeah. So but way back when, you see, they they defeated the Israelites and the thing they stole was the ark, the representation of God, right? So this is yeah, kind of the reversal of that now, that we will take your God away from you because your, your God is useless. But remember what happened. As soon as they placed the ark next to uh, the god Dagon, next day Dagon's fallen over, and the next day his head's chopped off and his arms are knocked off and everything else. So you know, God made the point, I'm a lot more powerful than these guys who have absolutely nothing. So yeah, so they, they, I, they're just taking them away to remove them so that the, the, the few remaining Philistines can't come back and reclaim the gods and, and start over again type of thing. Psychological victory. Yes, yeah. Which you can easily see how, the, how that would work. Yeah, we've, we've taken away everything you, you have. And there's only a few of them left. But... We're, yeah. That would work too. Nah, don't do that again. So we keep defeating the Philistines... And they keep coming back. Verse 22, look, they're all back again. It's like, but there's only a few of them in the previous verse. Now they're, they're back at the war. I, I don't understand it. It makes no, no sense. It seems as though David wiped them out, literally, but here they come again. So then verse 25, the, this location is important because the Philistines took this land way back in 1 Samuel 4. It's one of the first, first battles that, that we have recorded. So they won that battle and took that land. David now reclaims it for Israel. Yay! Not bad at all, huh? And there goes chapter 5. 6. Where are we at? 5. 
That one. <laughs> David keeps doing as the Lord commands and keeps winning battles. Thoughts? Well, that time he went to war and stayed out of trouble. Yes. Unlike other times. And I'm, I'm sure war, war was viewed as a time to get away from all the wives. <laughs> it's, it, was, it was a vacation of sorts. <laughs> What do you think, Gary? Yeah. <laughs> 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 the thing about chapter 5, though, is interesting is uh, there's a huge contrast between what the Saul and the David, because even the second time the Philistines came, God went out ahead of the people. Uh -huh. and that's just, you know, I guess that's just what jumped out to me, just a huge contrast between Saul Pryor, who God pretty much stepped back and said, you, you know, figure this out. <laughs> And then you have David who's consulting each step of the way, and as a result, God's saying, I'll go ahead of you. I'll take care of this. Start with Right, and that's what... Here you go, Gary. Yeah, God will do the same with us today if we act like David. And we're willing to consult, inquire, whatever you want to call it, of God. God said, sure, let's, let's go do this. And I'll go ahead of you. I'll clear the path. I'll take care of everything. Just done deal. As opposed to, I'm going to get ahead of God no, you don't want to go ahead of God, right? Because you want God protecting you along the way. Kind of like the Israelites um, in right after the uh, the parting of the, of, the, of the Red Sea, that you know God you know appears as a uh, a pillar of cloud by by day, but a pillar of fire at night, and uh, you know just I'm I'm leading you. Just 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 follow that image, and I'll I'll take care of everything ahead of you. Yeah, neat neat point. Say about Saul leading the armies into battle, or did he always send Abner out to lead? No, he was right there. It, um, but the, the the king often is not leading, leading. Okay. He's more directing, more, you know, giving the signal of you know where 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 to go and how many to go this that the other other place or you know attack here type of stuff. Because you have to you have to protect the king. You don't want the king directly involved in, in the battle. Although in that final battle, he 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 died. I mean, they they encroached that far and got him, and, and that was it. Yeah. Anything else? Chapter five. Chapter six. A couple fun things happening here. <coughs> First Samuel four. The ark is captured. That was a long time ago. And it actually said at that time it would be lost for a long time. But now it's finally ready to come back to where it belongs. In verse 2 it gives the location where the ark was. But what we have here is the name of the Canaanite city rather than the Hebrew name. So they're bringing the ark back to the Israelite people. Now this is huge. I mean, out there, everything else that's happened, this is the single most important event. It is massive. Because finally now we're making a place for God on Israelite territory, on our soil again. They had kept it for years right outside of Israel. And now they're going to bring it back. Verses 6 and 7, I guess we better discuss this a little bit. This guy named Uzzah. They're walking along. The ark is on a, a cart. Yes, Jay? What's a sistrum? The instruments. 
That's one of the musical instruments. I never heard of it. Where, what verse are you on? Uh-uh. Five. 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 Number five. They have tambourine, systems, and cymbals. What's a sistrum? Would that be like a type of harp or a, a flute? Harp, harp's already named. Okay, so Jimmers is looking it up. We'll, 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 we'll get back to you in a second. Um, so say, it, you know, it sounds drummish to me. A sistrum. Yeah, percussion or uh, yeah, drum, drums and cymbals. <laughs> Gee, fairly elaborate. Not bad. You shake it to make noise. Really? Why don't they just call casting it? Then? Why don't they call it a drum for that matter? <laughs> we need a time machine. <laughs> let's, let's. They pull those through holes and make a noise. Now you shake it. Makes the vibration. Hmm. Is that really a guy Pulling a stick through a hole. All right, so we got this guy named Uza, who is now with this great procession, all these musical instruments, a lot of fanfare, fireworks, a whole nine yards. And the Ark is on a cart, and apparently there is a problem with the cart. It's a pothole, something, but it starts tipping, and this guy named Uza is walking alongside the cart, and thinking that the cart is going to go over, and the Ark will be falling on the ground, reaches out to stop the Ark from falling. They say that oxen stumble. Yes. Now, Uzzah is trying to help, but God strikes him dead. That seems like an unfair punishment. You're a little harsh, God, right? Well, I, I, I see two reasons why God did what he did. First of all, God has already declared, and everyone knew it, this thing is holy Thou shalt not toucheth itth, or I will stri striketh thee dead. Right. So that uh, hard and fast rule, and no provision, no exception. It's not you know, don't touch it unless I'm in trouble. Right. Just don't do it. So we have that rule already. But secondly. Since the ark represents the physical presence of God, Uzzah is assuming that he can help God. So the big theological question I want to throw out to you today is, does God really need our help? No. Not today, not back then, Jen said. <laughs> she, she answered for you. See, that's why I only have one wife, Gary. Because I, I picked a smart one, I'm sticking with it. We're putting ourselves in equal footing. Right. So we'd be breaking the first commandment, the whole nine yards. So it's yeah, obviously a knee-jerk reaction on Uzzah's part. But nonetheless, it had to happen this way. God doesn't need our help. Remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and the Pharisees come out and yell at him and you know tell this crowd to be quiet. Well, tell the crowd to be quiet. The rocks themselves will 
will proclaim the praises of God, right? So, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. He doesn't need us to do it. However, God does want to work with us to accomplish His will. He could easily do it without us, but He prefers to work with us to accomplish His goals. Unfortunate for Uzzah, keeping the ark from following was not part of God's plan. Therefore, that terrible result. So for those reasons, any thoughts on that? Controversies? Don't want you going to bed tonight afraid to touch something. Well, my Bible says that it was a punishment to Uzzah and David because he wasn't carrying it right anyway. It wasn't supposed to be on that cart. Yeah, it was supposed to be carried by hand. So, but apparently over the, the time it was gone, people forgot how to properly handle it. So, yeah, <laughs> the instruction book was inside, and you're not allowed to touch it. That still have to be processed by the tribe of Levi at that time, or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the only certain people were allowed around it. Period. And yeah. At that point, they still would have had the tribe of Levi to carry it. Yep. Yep. So. Doesn't change. Yeah. Yep. Just pass on from generation to generation. Say that once or twice. That's right. That's right. Seven hundred wives, and not one of them knew the right answer. Which is amazing, isn't it? He probably didn't ask them. <laughs> Talk about the odds being stacked against you. If a tree falls in the wood and no one hears it, is it still the man's fault? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so we have the whole ordeal then with uh, David dancing, uh, apparently naked. Uh, king, king of Israel, dancing around buck naked in the streets. So... Um, not my first choice, but hey. Uh, it's, again, demonstrating the, the magnitude of what this event is. This is the biggest deal ever. And David just goes kind of crazy. Now, it doesn't say he was drunk. It doesn't say anything like that. He was just, he's so overjoyed. He starts dancing naked in the streets. And one of his many wives, Michael, who in fact is the first wife, who then got passed on to somebody else, and then uh, Ishbosheth gave Michael back to Saul, or back to, to David, uh, not too long ago. This wife objects. The only one. Uh, verse, verse 20. Yeah. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Well, thank you, dear. Uh, David says, that, no, what I was doing was before the Lord. Now, we know there's a setup here again, and if you, when you read carefully, you begin to, the, the Bible gives you little clues. Doesn't always come out and tell you exactly what it's trying to say. But if you go back to verse 16, Michael, as she's reintroduced into the storyline, is called the daughter of Saul, not the wife of David. So distancing her from David. Uh, the same identification occurs in verse 20. Right? When David returned home, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out. See it? So twice it makes that point. She's not, we don't look at her as, as David's wife. She is Saul's daughter. 
So she's not associated with David because of the way she reacts to David dancing while bringing the ark. So this is basically saying, this is the Bible's assessment of saying, Michael is wrong. Are you, are you imagining David dancing naked? <laughs> Jimmer shared what, what, what he said was so funny. Are, you're, you're, are, afterwards, you, you're not allowed to leave until I find out. Your friend was still. She's laughing harder than you are. What do you um, want to say now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I married you. Right there. There it is. <laughs> so the story is already giving us clues that this this is not approved by God, what Michael is, is saying. She's not defending God. David, in fact, says, verse 21, I was doing this before the Lord. Right, so I, I I'm using that as a means of proclaiming uh, my praise to God. By the way, I'm not going to do that this Sunday. Um, but now the most telling verse is the very last verse, verse 23. It declares that Michael never had any children. Likely because after her comments, David never wanted anything to do with her again. I got other chicks around here, and. Uh, don't need you. you know, multiple other wives and porcupines and everything running around here. So, uh, go eat worms there, chicky. So, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? That I mean, this is a way of saying you know God's God's punishment, God's judgment upon her for that. And in this culture. A barren woman was just about the worst thing could possibly happen. So, uh, it certainly indicated, in, in in this sense, you know, the lack lack of love of your husband, but that you know, God just, well, well, that's your last chance. So, uh, it gets gets kind of critical there. So there you go. We are out of time.